We have to sort of start to think about the inflation picture, where yields are headed, and then ultimately how that impacts equities and ultimately all risk assets. And if we think about sort of furthest out the risk curve, at least in most traditional allocators view, would be something like crypto, right? Or smaller speculative venture investments in the equity space, those types of things. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become a liquid at any time, and is only for those investors with high risk tolerance. Now let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey. How's it going, Ryan? Pretty good. How are you doing? Welcome back. Doing great. Had a a two-week hiatus. Yeah, what were you up to when you were out? I was uh, getting married. Oh, so, no, big, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. I've been a, a little bit out of tune. So if I'm a little rusty or uh, my facts uh, aren't all you know, 100% up to date. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll, g- we'll give you a pass on your, your first, uh, your, I guess now your second week of marriage. <laughs> You're just going through a pretty big life adjustment. <laughs> yeah, just had my two-week anniversary. <laughs> nice. Congrats. You've, you've uh, made it farther than some celebrities, I think. <laughs> Um, we don't have, uh, we don't have Parth and we don't have Jason today, so it's just going to be you and I for, uh, today's discussion. We'll, uh, we'll try not to sink the ship while they're gone. Um, but a couple of uh, interesting things, uh, developments in the last week that I think we wanted to spend some time talking about, um, you know, pretty big market sell-off last week, um, particularly around Bitcoin. Um, so I think, you know, usually these, these market events, it's a good opportunity for us to maybe take a step back and talk a little bit, uh, macro. Um, and I, I know you love to, uh, uh, provide some commentary on that. So we'll, we'll talk, talk a bit about that. Um, and then a couple of notable news stories that we also wanted to hit on. And today's session um, related to uh, Coinbase gaining approval to list futures in the U.S., um, as well as um, a the first um, Bitcoin spot ETF uh, listing in Europe last week. So, um, you know, obviously uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs in the U.S. have been a really um, hot topic recently. So I think, um, again, we can talk a little bit about that story, but maybe tie it back to, you know, what were what the most recent sentiment um, in the U.S. is. Um, so with that, I think let's jump in. Um, so we saw on Thursday, I think Bitcoin, you know, sold off by like 10%. Um, you know, so can you just provide maybe a little bit of a, you know, macro backdrop as to what we're seeing and kind of how we think that might be impacting the crypto markets? Yeah, so quiet news week. So always an opportunity for me yeah. to uh, to chat macro and how that's impacting digital assets. So I think what we've seen largely this year, if we zoom back your know, year, we had rising inflation in the in the first half of 2022. That's you know, started in 2021 and 2022. Uh, and then the Federal Reserve 
stopped saying this line of inflation is transitory as a result of COVID and supply chain issues um, and started to uh, consider and, and started to raise interest rates. I believe it was March of 2022 was the first uh, 25 basis point rate hike. Um, since then, you've gone from a range of zero to 25 basis points on the Fed funds rate uh, over the last roughly year and a half uh, to I think we're at 525 to 550, so 5.25 to 5.5% on the federal funds rate. And we've seen interest rates all across the bond yield curve uh, rise, right? And at the moment, the the yield curve is inverted. So longer rates are are actually at lower yields uh, than shorter rates. And that's typically a lot lot of people uh, talk about how that's a recession indicator because uh, people are are buying those long uh, long rates for the potential for rate cuts in the future. If you have some sort of an event and then rates will come down and longer duration uh, on a bond, if you own a 10 year bond, it will actually appreciate in price if yields fall. Right, because you're locked in at, at higher rates. Um, and at the moment, we have an inverted yield curve, but we see yields have been rising uh, all across the curve over the past 18 months. But in particular, on the long end of the curve, the 10-year, the 30-year has been rising uh, to the point where in the last week, especially, we're seeing uh, this breaking uh, of yields from uh, an 18-month sort of consolidation level or resistance level of on the 10-year, it was around 4.25%. Now we're up as we're talking, uh, just under 4.35%. Um, some are speculating 4.5%, on the 10 year. All of this is really important when we think about pricing of, of equities, of risk assets. If we think about Bitcoin as an alternative monetary asset, well, what happens when uh, money, when, when just fiat dollars, yields you know higher rates in excess of the expectation of inflation that that's positive real interest rates in the future where uh, just owning you know treasury bills or, or owning bonds could potentially pay you at rates above inflation uh, at least the way that the bond market is pricing at the moment well that changes the opportunity cost uh, associated with investing in risky assets if there is potentially an, an attractive alternative. And so at the moment, as we see see yields are breaking higher, we have to sort of start to think about the inflation picture, uh, where yields are headed, and then ultimately how that impacts equities and, and ultimately all risk assets. And if we think about sort of furthest out the risk curve, at least in most traditional allocators view, uh, would be something like crypto, right? Or smaller speculative venture uh, investments in the equity space, those types of things. That's sort of the, the area where on the risk spectrum, we think of uh, crypto potentially living. Yeah, no, you, you know, so, so I, I guess that kind of raises an interesting question, right? Like, does this kind of relatively unprecedented dynamic between bond markets and equity markets does that like create an opportunity for bitcoin does bitcoin just get bitcoin and other crypto assets right um or does it just get lumped in with other risk assets like how do you how do you see that playing out yeah so i think there's um a really important uh delineation to make here which is last year in 2022 if you think about uh, traditional assets, and I think of a 60-40 portfolio, right? That's what a lot of like the average 401k benchmark looks like for like a retiree or, or somebody saving for retirement. Um, maybe own more equities or, or less equities depending on how old you are. Uh, but a 60-40, 60% equities, 40% fixed income, bond exposure. Um, 
And last year, it was one of the worst years on record for a 60-40 portfolio because yields rose, and that means that bond prices fell. And at the same time, those yields rising means that there's a, a higher opportunity cost. Uh, what we would say for like a discounted cash flow model of a company is a higher discount rate because the rate at which you would discount future cash flows is higher, which means the, the present value of those cash flows becomes lower, similar to the way that a bond price falls as yields rise. Um, and so we saw like tech get hit the worst because those are, you know, future speculative cash flows on these, you know, startup companies. If you think of, uh, growthy tech companies and most often crypto assets get sort of put into that similar speculative, uh, far out cash flows to the degree that the assets have a cash flow. Or for instance, Bitcoin, a speculative alternative money, which should in theory be responsive to those changes in interest rates. And in 2022, we saw that that was a major headwind and the price of bonds, the price of stocks and the price of crypto assets all fell in 2022. In 2023, we've seen a bit of a bounce and less of a response to changes in yields. Yeah, we, I mean, in a similar bit, bounce in Bitcoin, right? Yes, exactly. Right. And some of that maybe was, oh, we got too oversold. And, and crypto had its own host of you know, companies that were you know, coming apart or, or that ended up failing uh, in 2022. So certain things that it had to work through that were unique. Um, price of Bitcoin's up 80% this year. Price of the NASDAQ, when I think of you know, tech stocks, uh, growth companies, up still, I think like 40% this year. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but both are up at the same time as yields now at the moment, as we're talking, are back at their highs or actually just now have broken the highs that they were at back in October and November of last year uh, when we were at the bottom in, in prices for the NASDAQ and prices for Bitcoin. And now the, I think the, the main question is, are those macro headwinds showing back up in the second half of this year? And I think a lot of it has to do with where is inflation headed? Um, and I don't want to break down the entire picture on inflation. Um, all I'll say is when I look at the data, we can look at the months that are rolling off. And so, for instance, it's August right now. On August 10th, we had the print for July, right? That was July of this year. And if we look at the year-over-year -year CPI number, well, we roll off the old July and we add the new July. And so in order to tell whether the year-over-year -year number is moving up or down, we, we know one part of the equation, which is the number that's rolling off. And then if the new number is higher or lower, then we know where the year-over-year -year number is headed. Right. And the summer of last year was the highest uh, CPI numbers that we had on record, especially if you look at uh, May or April, May, June of last year. Those were the highest month-over-month -month numbers. We rolled those off for numbers that were you know, pretty average in recent months, 20 basis points, 30 basis points. That's a, a pretty you know, average number that gets you to a 2 to 3% year-over-year CPI rate if you did that the entire way through. Right. If you roll off high numbers and add low numbers, then the year-over-year -year number will keep moving down. Now, the comps start to get harder in the second half of this year because the numbers in the fall and the winter of last year were not as extreme and elevated. You have to you know, print really low numbers in order to keep the CPI number moving from you know, now we're at 3.2% year over year to get it back down to 2%. 
you know, we're going to have to print low numbers. And if we don't, yeah. then there's the potential for CPI or inflation to potentially reaccelerate, for people to start to talk about this idea of potentially higher for longer on interest rates because the relationship between inflation, if it starts to reaccelerate on a year over year basis into the end of this year, could put pressure on yields. And again, as we've discussed, yields in theory raise the, the cost of capital for all assets. Um, so that's sort of like my view on like these macro headwinds at the moment, the potential for this conversation around inflation necessarily maybe not being gone. And maybe we're not back at 2% at the end of the year. Maybe we're at three and a half, four, four and a half percent, right? Nobody's really talking about 9% again. Um, but the Fed's target is 2%, not four. And if we're at four at the end of the year, again, maybe we are, maybe we aren't, not a prediction, but if we're at 4%, then you know, the view that the Fed's going to be cutting interest rates or anything like that would be you know, pretty off base if their target is still 2% and we're at so twice the target. Un unemployment's still relatively low. Yeah, exactly. Right. Unemployment 3.5% at the moment. That's you know, effectively close to you know, record lows. So, so as we head into the end of the year, is there kind of any, you know, outside of inflation, right, the inflation data, is there any other kind of trigger that you're monitoring? Um indicator yeah yeah there's so there's like obviously a million variables here but on the one end if we keep the status quo going forward if we do see inflation reacceleration well then we probably do see the long end of the yield curve continue to sort of tick gradually higher and again that is going to be probably a headwind for risky assets and especially for for crypto as well um, i'm not saying like this is the end of the world or anything like that um but it's not a tailwind in the macro backdrop in that environment. The other side of the spectrum or the other potential risks that could pop up as we continue to see yields move higher is we think of back to March of this year and you had uh, the regional bank issues, which you know, the Federal Reserve and, and Treasury responded pretty quickly with uh, a new program they called uh, BTFP, a Bank Term Funding Program. We don't have to get into the details or specifics of it, but the idea was this was going to be a one-year um, to some degree, like a, a band-aid um, to, to help these regional banks with any funding issues that they have because yields moved higher. They owned a lot of these bonds um, and, and that caused potentially impairment on their balance sheet or uh, uh, like if, if all of their deposits had left uh, and they had bonds on their books that were at lower prices, they'd be forced to sell those bonds and maybe they wouldn't have all of the, the cash to be able to refill those depositors. So they put a program in place to hopefully help those banks. And so far, you know, it has seemed to stop the bleeding. Um, but at the same time, you know, yields continue to move higher. Uh, you don't necessarily have the solution in place. So could uh, higher yields continue to, you know, maybe push fears in the, the regional banking sector? There's a potential there. Um, Commercial real estate is another one that everybody you know, has talked quite a bit about with yields moving higher. Uh, commercial real estate tends to be financed with you know, sorts of balloon payments uh, where people will refinance after a, a certain number of years. Um, and at the same time, right, work from home being a, a large thing, right? That's a, another big one. There's a number of different like potential catalysts that change, could change the picture quite quickly from fears of inflation to you know, yields are too high and, and maybe they're they're starting to cause issues in the financial system one way or another because of the way the plumbing is structured. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it'll be really interesting to to monitor. 
all of this is under the assumption that there's no other kind of systemic issues that arise in the system or, you know, some of the geopolitical risks that people are monitoring, you know, related to this data as well. Um, so, you know, there, to your po earlier point, there truly is so many variables that you need to consider. Um, possible to, to quantify it all, I suppose. Yeah, impossible to quantify it all. There's so many variables uh, at play that like some that we're clearly not even thinking about here. And if you look at like crypto market cycles at the moment, this cycle looks very similar. This drawdown and this current bear market with kind of like really low levels of volatility uh, up until you know last week, we had a, a spike in volatility, but that's kind of the norm that we've seen before in prior cycles in 2013, uh, after the peak, uh, after the, the you know late 2017 peak, we saw the same sort of f these four year cycles. Again, people like to talk about around the Bitcoin having, I'm not saying that all of that is necessarily repeating, uh, but one thing to bear in mind is like the charts look very similar, but the macro is very different this time around, at least at the moment. And maybe that changes six, nine, 12 months from now. We're right. probably living in a very different world and having a different conversation. But at the moment, there are macro headwinds that to me seem you know, pretty clear. Um, so, you know, I just exercise caution at the moment. Uh, to wait and see. And I feel like some of the market activity that we've seen kind of indicates that that's the strategy that people are taking, at least in the near term. Yep. Um, all right, let's um, let's move on. So a couple of uh, notable stories. So the first uh, coming out of Coinbase. So um, they received approval from the National Futures Association to become a futures commission merchant or FCM. Um, I, I think this is this is pretty notable. Obviously, this is something that we we knew was on the kind of their list um, to be able to offer to to clients. Um, and I, I think Mark's really the, the first time um, that we're seeing kind of a crypto native company be able to offer at least accredited investors access to spot market as well as um, derivatives markets. I think it's notable because such a huge portion of crypto markets in general are actually actually happen in the derivatives market versus the spot market. I think in their press release to, to announce this, development coinbase i think it's like 75 percent of global activity which is really pretty staggering when you think about it jack just curious like what do you think about this like clearly this is um we've talked a lot about coinbase um recently particularly with their ongoing lawsuit with the sec um and and here we have kind of a, a net new capability being delivered to the us which is i would say a material uh change in direction compared to what we've seen from them and other crypto providers in the us recently yeah, so I definitely think it's an interesting development. The only large notable uh, place to trade regulated futures in the United States, like Bitcoin or, or ETH futures, is the CME. And at least as far as I understand, uh, the CME doesn't accept digital asset collateral. And so I think you could you could argue that some of the inefficiencies that exist at the moment in the futures market, uh, where like you have futures that trade in contango or backwardation at more extreme levels than could they be more efficiently arbitraged with spot collateral might actually potentially uh, firms like Coinbase accept digital asset collateral, which I don't know if on this launch, you know, if there's additional approvals that are needed or not, um, or if that's the plan, I would assume that it is considering that it's a, a company that deals you know, almost in entirely crypto. in spot crypto assets. So I'd, right. I would assume that they will or, or will, uh, or at least one from the start eventually, except right. 
Bitcoin, Ethereum, highly liquid uh, spot as collateral, in which case you could see this benefiting uh, futures markets from an efficiency standpoint, um, from like an arbitrage standpoint as well. Do we, do we feel like that has any impact on a lot of the future futures-based products, particularly, you know, the, the uh, futures ETF uh, for Bitcoin and Ethereum? Like, does that, does that help at all? Because we've obviously, you know, it's well-documented what some of the grievances are with, with those products in terms of the way that they're structured. Um, but yeah, does that, does that remediate some of those issues? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, thing that I honestly wasn't even really thinking about until you just mentioned it right there. But Again, if the theory is right, if this does increase some of the efficiencies in the futures market, it could lower the the roll costs associated with uh, withholding some of these futures based products. Because at the moment, um, and I don't know where they're trading at right now, uh, but they they were trading in Contango, which means the futures price is more expensive than the spot price. And that actually technically should be the case, um, but it should be the case to the degree of the cost of, of the risk-free rate, um, which it's been you know, in excess of that um, for like much of, much of its entire existence. Um, it did trade in backwardation when a lot of people were, were shorting uh, Bitcoin last year, which means the futures price was lower. And so there was actually a roll yield associated with holding those products. I believe it has since traded again at a premium, a slight premium. Um, yeah. So to the degree that you can increase efficiencies in those markets, then you can bring down the all-in costs. Um, and some of those are like phantom or hidden costs that aren't explicit expenses that you're paying to the, the product provider, but they are like a cost relative to holding the spot product. Um, so any efficiencies that we can gain, I think for, for end investors is, you know, should be viewed as a, a positive, right? Positive tech towards, you know, more market maturation, potentially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And the other the other story that I just quickly wanted to cover um, was related to, you know, the spur first spot Bitcoin ETF listing in Europe. And I, I guess just caveat this with, you know, it's a bit of a technicality because we do have, um, you know, spot ETP products related uh, related to Bitcoin in Europe, but uh, Jacoby Asset Management um, launching their ETF and they had had gotten approval for this, I think, last year. Um, but in, in light of like some of the market developments that we saw, particularly around, you know, some of the major exchanges failing um, and, and the other kind of C5 lenders failing, they, they had decided to defer the listing. Um, but listing on Euronext in Amsterdam under Jacoby FT Wilshire Bitcoin ETF. Um, you know, I think this is you know, a positive development for, for the European market, right? Um, I think one aspect that was particularly interesting to me as, you know, someone who monitors the the mining space um, and, and is kind of keenly focused on um, the ESG aspects of, of or, you know, in, in some cases, concerns around Bitcoin, um, they're actually layering in, um, car, you know, renewable energy certificates into the, the fund itself to help offset um, some of the emissions associated with the, the creation and, you know, um, the creation and maintenance of the Bitcoin network. Um, so, you know, that specific aspect related to this particular ETF was interesting to me. Um, obviously, you know, the carbon accounting for a lot of this is is not terribly mature at this point. And, you know, we, we've seen some pushback from the industry, but it, it's it's novel. It's, you know, fairly novel in terms of, you know, products that are trading in the market. Um, but I, I guess 
tying it back to the U.S., right? Because we've had conversations, um, you know, recently around, you know, the wave of spot ETF, uh, Bitcoin ETF applications that we've seen in the U.S. And will the SEC approve or will they not approve? Um, can you just maybe provide a little bit of context on kind of where the market is at now with regard to that question um, and, and like what the general sentiment seems to be? Yeah. So, I mean, I would start with the fact that you know, I don't have any information that you know, the general public doesn't have here. So there's a few things happening, I guess, from what I would say, unlike the ETF front in the United States as it pertains to digital assets. One is spot Bitcoin ETF. The other is the fact that we already have the Bitcoin futures ETFs. You have Bitcoin futures that trade on the CME. Uh, there are products that trade the Bitcoin futures funds now, potentially. Uh, we have a number of filings for ETH futures funds to be put into ETFs. Uh, and now there's, you know, there's double digit filings. I was looking at uh, all of them. There's like five to eight ETH futures ETF applications at the moment. I don't think there's been official approvals or anything at the moment, but again, that would be uh, positive momentum around digital assets broadly starting to gain, you know, again, ex acceptance, uh, you know, more regulatory oversight and approval. Again, this is just futures funds, um, but there are Bitcoin ones that exist. There are filings for ETH futures funds that uh, that now are, are refiled or filed. And then there's also a category that if you have Bitcoin and ETH futures that are able to be put into ETF products, could you start to create, uh, whether it's indexed products that own both at their market cap weight, uh, that own them at you know 50% Bitcoin, 50% ETH, or strategic ones that you know change between Bitcoin and Ethereum based off of whatever momentum indicators or or certain market signals. Now there's filings for those types of products as well, and so it'll be interesting in the second half of this year to see if maybe we get some of those approvals. Um, and again, it's not the spot products like the spot Bitcoin products uh, that you know many are hoping for, but it is you know some type of of progress around momentum. digital assets being accessible to traditional investors the way that you know the the crypto industry coming to TradFi rather than forcing TradFi to come to the crypto investors. And then on the spot front, uh, we're, we're all kind of waiting to hear about the Grayscale SEC lawsuit uh, outcome. And I don't know that anybody's expecting that to come back, even if it comes back in favor of Grayscale, to mean that there will be a spot product the next day or anything like that. Um, but that will be some type of indicator that will tell us that the industry is getting closer or you know, is getting ahead of itself with the now eight to 10 different uh, spot filings. And my understanding is that thus far throughout the history of Bitcoin ETF filings, uh, they have chosen to kind of delay until the last date possible that they're allowed to delay until. If we assume that they do you know, delay all of these various filings and kind of kick them out as far as they'll go, that would be in the first half of 2024 would be when we would get you know, real hard approve or, or deny uh, decisions here. And then the Grayscale lawsuit, which again, some were expecting to, to come uh, last week to hear some news on that front. It didn't come. So maybe at some point in the, you know, the coming weeks or, or months, we'll, we'll hear about that. Yeah, the focus on Grayscale is interesting to me because I think to your point, there's no there's no guarantee, right, or direct link between you know the outcome of that lawsuit and the potential approval of a spot you know ETF. But I do think you know it, it kind of 
to your point, is maybe indicative of of momentum in one direction or another. But I, I, I think it's truly going to take an, an approval or a rejection of one of these applications for for the market actually to to you know basically you know come to terms with what the you know at least the medium term outlook around these products is going to look like in the meantime we'll be in the you know a holding pattern watching the inflation data and <laughs> potential <laughs> approval of an etf <laughs> um which which could you know you know have pretty significant consequences for the market in one direction or another <laughs> yeah so what we're saying is you'll get your answers to uh, the macro front uh, as well as potential spot approvals or denials in about six months, give or take. <laughs> but in the meantime, just, you know, hanging on to your hat because we'll probably have some volatility. The market has shown that it's very, uh, very creative and, and, you know, looking for indicators and making, you know, making assumptions on those indicators, whether they're, you know, sh- you know, uh, hold any, hold any water or not. I'm sure um, plenty will be uh, will be happening between now and then. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Or it'll be the largest news lull we've ever had in crypto. That's for sure. <laughs> um, well, I just want to thank you for for the discussion today. This was this was awesome. I really appreciate the macro overview. Um, and next week we'll have uh, we'll have Parth and Jason back, and I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty more to talk about. Uh, but in the meantime, um, you know just a friendly reminder that we, we encourage people to check us out on, on the various podcast platforms and subscribe to us there, leave a review, um, and feel free to get in contact with us on any of the social channels, including Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and Instagram, you know, feel free to reach out. And, and, you know, if you have any questions, you know, you can send them there. Um, but in the meantime, um, we will, uh, talk to you all later. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Jack. Crypto as an asset class is highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and is for investors with a high risk tolerance. Crypto may also be more susceptible to market manipulation than securities. Crypto is not insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or the Securities Investor Protection Corporation. Investors in crypto do not benefit from the same regulatory protections applicable to registered securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and are not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution would or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.